Thanks, Bill. It means a lot to me. Um, Bill, you know, and I have been partners in ministry for a long time, and it goes all the way back to high school when I was a high schooler. And Bill mentored me and pastored me as a young man, and here we are together in ministry all these years later. So it, is, uh, it has truly been. And Bill just celebrated uh, a birthday, October 14th, and so we celebrate you and honor you, Bill. And uh, all these years, and Ron back there, Ron Montgomery, who runs our sound, who is not seen on the video, but uh, he is loved, and he really does. Um, he puts things together, and he is a, a calmness in the midst of, as James said this morning, uh, just lots of pieces being put together. He brings it all together. So we celebrate you as well, Ron, and anybody else that had an October birthday. So how about that? Anybody else? No other? Amanda? Yes, another one. Well, welcome. Well, happy birthday. Great month for birthdays. Well, this morning, uh, Bill said that I had the freedom to share what I wanted to share. And so I'm actually going to begin by telling the story of Jonah through a very, very poorly written limerick. So this is my attempt. It doesn't have the right cadence you know, the A-A-B-A-A or whatever, however you do a limerick. But this is my attempt to tell the story. You know the story of Jonah, right? If you're new with us, you're kind of following along that Jonah is an Old Testament prophet. And God called him to go from Israel to go to Assyria to tell them about God's love. And he didn't want to go. And so several things happened to push him in the right direction. So... Be careful when you decide you don't want to do what God wants you to do. He's going to just keep pursuing you with his love. And his love wins every time. It really does. And it's a great story. But often with reluctance. And that's okay. So here's my attempt at a limerick. Telling the story, the entire story of Jonah. So there once was a man named Jonah who lived in a very small town near Pomona. So he thought, pure evil, pure evil, those people who lived in Ramona, cross-town rivals of Pomona. So he hastily took passage when God sent him a message and abruptly ended up in a fish's digestive. It was there that he sat to ponder upon that which God was up to yonder. He wrestled his God who showed a great concern in this fish's meal as he did in those vileness, misguided zeal. So he prayed and made restitution before the fish eked him out in his own constitution. Thus, a grand transformation was in process with the man now covered in slime. Far from perfect, for he had yet to fully shine. Cross town on his way, to Ramona he slid to tell of God's play, which was really more about Jonah than those people filled with Bologna. In the end, he bemoaned as God revowed to love him as much as those he loathed. Those people who disliked his tone but listened nonetheless and heard of his God and his home. So the story is clear. The point is not to be feared. Be on your guard from a heart filled with rage or you will end up in someone's cage. 
So quit your crying and wailing and turn to praying, even while you remain caught up in the slime of your own perfect crime. So there's the story of Jonah. How about that? And this morning is Jonah's prayer. And this is the moment where Jonah has to come face to face with God. And oftentimes, as Bill said, it, it, it takes God's doing to get us in a place where we'll just stop and listen. And so this morning, we're going to hear a little bit from this prayer, but I've also asked Will Barker to come up and, and join me up front in a minute here. And he's going to actually enact Jonah and what it might have been like in the belly of this fish, which you're all wondering, did it really happen? Well, Taylor's already answered that question for us in uh, chapter one of our study, right? Sermon number one. He allowed many of you to believe that it's just simply a myth and many of you to believe that it was actually, really actually happened, which is really not our debate this morning, the fact that Jonah ended up in the belly of a whale. But I would say, just by observation, that if you find this story really difficult to believe, that God could not possibly have put a human man inside of the belly of a large fish for three days and spit him out, then you're going to have a lot of trouble believing that God actually sent a son to earth who died and was crucified and buried and rose three days later. Or the story that God created the world. Some way, somehow, he created what we now call the cosmos. And so I just put that as a little challenge for you to think and understand that possibly Jonah was a real person that Taylor, of course, believes in as well. But um, uh, this, this actually could possibly have happened. We believe in miracles. In fact, by the way, in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, Jesus refers to a person named Jonah and says, just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so I will be three days in the belly of the earth, and on the third day I will rise again. Jesus refers to a story in the Old Testament of a prophet named Jonah to refer back in history to something that happened and looks forward to an event that he, that he will actually be part of, the resurrection. And it would seem unlikely that he would use a story, a fictitious story, to illustrate the reality of his resurrection. By the way, and I'm way off subject, but I will just simply say, I spent an hour on a walk this week listening to a skeptic, a PhD from Duke University, Dr. Carol Myers, who told the story of ancient Israel who does not believe that God called the people through Abraham and became this great nation and the whole story of the Bible because she throws the whole thing out as fiction. And in the conversation, in this one-hour-long lecture with all these brilliant minds and PhDs and all this intelligence and history and background and archaeology and everything else, her best surmise is she calls a hypothesis, she proposes... She's saying, this is my best analysis without any historical evidence that the people of Canaan, 
the people of Israel actually were descendants of the Canaanites that didn't like the Canaanites, like the Puritans in England, left and became the people of Israel. And she proposes this. And an hour long later, I'm listening to this going, are you kidding me? You're, I'm supposed to believe that the whole history of the Old Testament is fictitious on the basis of your hypothesis, which you cannot point to any proof whatsoever of that connection. Long story, but there you go. So as you can see, I believe in the historicity of the Bible. Now, back to our story this morning. Here's the story of Jonah. The, jo the story of jo Jonah is the story, the entire message of the Bible, which is God is for the outsiders. That's the entire message of the Bible, is God is for the outsiders. I have said this, and it's true about who we are as a river church. We are for people. We exist as a church for people that don't even attend our church. How is that possible? How can we exist for people that aren't even here, that may not even be interested in what we're doing here this morning? I'll tell you why. Because passion for compassion, which is our vision, is the story of Jesus who saw the crowd outside of Israel, the multitudes, the distress, the downcast, and he felt compassion and he sent his best people, his best students, his best young disciples to go after them and to bring them in. And that's the story of the Bible, God bringing in outsiders. And that's the story of Jonah. And yet, you know what our problem is? Our problem is and our tendency is to take sides. We are actually seeing that played out in the world political forum uh, today. No question. Israel is fighting a great enemy. No question about it. Hamas. And yet countries are taking sides and in the midst of this and choosing sides of what we love and what we hate, innocent people are being played as human pawns in a massive chess game of dominance driven by hatred. Yeah, there's a lot of political evaluation and, and, and uh, assumptions and all sorts of things that we could get into. And yet, innocent people are in the midst of the Middle East that are in, caught in this the, the crossfire of this. And, and, and it's really sad to me that the greatest minds and the most intelligent people in the world today that are running countries around the world have never consulted God. No one is consulting God as to what God would say about this situation or what God would say what's going on in our own country as people draw lines and draw distinctions. I have seen relationships Lifelong relationships literally dissipate over political and moral and other kinds of issues. It's remarkable to me the div divisiveness that is deep within the heart of humanity. And yet God is a God for everyone. And, and we don't understand that and we don't know how to work all that out because David was against his enemies. He stood against his enemies in Psalm 139, and yet God still loves his enemies, and we don't understand that. We can't figure that all out, but there's something about that that we need to pay attention to. God relentlessly pursues the wayward, the scallywags, the obstinate, the prideful, the intellectuals, the persons of no means and low status, the lonely, the devious, and even the pure evil. Psalm 136 reminds us, give thanks to the Lord of heaven for his love endures forever. 
1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxiety on the the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. In other words, he he absolutely really does love you. Uh, Romans 8, 39, he says, I'm confident and convinced of this, that neither death nor life nor principalities or powers or anything present or anything in the future can separate me from what? The love of God. This beautiful, beautiful passage in Song of Solomon reminds us to put a seal over our hearts because of God's love. A seal over your heart because of God's love. So the Bible is filled with a God that pursues us, and yet we want to draw lines and pull back and and become exclusive when God wants to be an inclusive. And so Jonah is the story of Jonah's heart, which is really Jonah represents Israel, all of Israel that had been given a task, it had been given a mission, the benefits and the values of a relationship with God through covenant relationship. They had the temple and circumcision and the law, and they had all these signs and symbols, and they had these practices to help them understand that they are the covenanted people that God blessed. And yet, in Genesis 12, we know that the origin of the nation of Israel started with a seed, one seed. And that seed would grow, and it would be the many, many people of Israel, ancient Israel. That existed, it says in Genesis chapter 12, for the purpose of blessing all other families of the earth. Why would God do that? All the families of the earth, those outside of Israel, would be blessed by those inside. And in Isaiah 49, God reminds the people, I made you a light to the nation. I want you to be a light to the nation, to bring my salvation to the nations. And so here we go. Jonah's got to wrestle with that and his understanding of God. And it says this, Jonah prayed, and and, and he says from the stomach of the fish, and he says, I called out my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. You'd cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to point me to death. The deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord. While I was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to me, and it came to you into your holy temple, and those who regard vain idols and forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And then it says, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. His time was over. And so you see, you see his prayer unfolding and you see a dialogue, a deep discussion, pondering the things of God as God's speaking to him. Now in this tight place, it's interesting that uh, in a tight place, Jonah has nothing else to do but pray. Prayer causes us to come face-to-face with our own stubbornness. So what was that conversation like? Come on up, Will. I want you to get us into this scene. And I want us to feel 
what it might have been like for Jonah to feel what he felt and to experience the, the difficulty, the, the challenge of God's love for people that he could not stand. So let's put ourselves in that place and think deeply about it. Well, here we are. This was your idea. And now we're stuck in this carcass. You know? If I had any sense, I'd agitate the beast and be done with it. But. What? No, I won't go. I, you're not listening. It just won't work. I know you have this idea, this big plan, but have you ever heard of a, a circumcised Ninevite? This, an Assyrian that carries the Torah? No. Come on. We're different. We're better than that. You said so. You gave us the covenant. The Shema and all that. O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your might. We're set apart. We're your people. We've got the land, the Torah, circumcision, the blessing, sacrifices, all four kinds. Yeah. And we're, we're just... We're not that bad. Really? We're not savages. I mean, no, chosen, yes. But I'm just the prophet. I don't deserve to be thrown into the fish because, you know, some idolatrous Israelites. But... Yeah, I don't like it. I don't have to like them, but maybe, you know, I'm open to the, the idea. Um, yeah. yeah, I know who you are. You keep reminding me, and it's really loud in here. Just echoes. Um, well, I said I'd do it, okay? Now get me out of here. Get me on some dry land if, you know, please. Okay? I'll go. You're welcome. Ninevites, listen up. prayer uh, such a complicated thing often and 
we, we, we feel like we can't have that kind of a conversation with the Almighty God. And yet what we find in Scripture is that um, that's the kind of God we have. Um, and for Jonah and maybe for us, it begins by understanding a deeper sense of God's love. And, the, and I would even go as far to say this, that in the belly of the whale, I think what Jonah realized was how far and how wide God's love extended. And until he experienced it for himself, he would never be able to share it with others. I was uh, at lunch this week, and I had a, um, just a meet-up with, a, with an, a good old friend. And I thought, we're just connecting, and I, I, I know his backstory, and I know he's been through a very, very traumatic, life-changing experience. And yet we just kind of talked about different things, and then, and then he shared his kind of where he's at. This is a guy that's super talented, very charismatic, given himself to the Lord and has been serving the Lord now for many, many years. And yet, um, because of addiction, has um, uh, found himself in rehab now 100 days, three different rehab programs. And as we shared his story of coming out of this in a new place, he just said a lot of people have turned from me. I've been called a hypocrite. And I, I was kind of like caught off guard. Like I, I wasn't, I didn't really know what was going on in, going on in the conversation emotionally. I, re, I was just thinking like we were just connecting as friends and something deeper was going on. And so I said, oh, brother, that is so not true. And he looked at me and he asked me and he, he, he called me by name, Todd, am I still useful to God? That was his question. And I said, oh, even more so. It's the first thing I said. And then I began to just build him up. I had no idea what I was doing. I just spoke truth. I said, God values you. He loves you. And the story of your life will be the story of God's grace poured out through you for other people. And his eyes were filled with tears, and he just began to weep. He just wept, and he just, there were tears rolling down his cheeks. And I'm looking straight into this guy with his eyes filled with tears as he's hearing really the Lord saying, oh, if you only knew how much I love you. And that in this recovery, and as you stand strong, you will be even more useful to me because you're a broken person that can now tell of the grace of God. And God wants to get every single one of us to that same place. And maybe that hasn't happened. Maybe it's going to happen. Maybe it's in the process of happening. But in a moment in your life, you're going to have it out with God and you're going to feel this. Or why did this happen? Why did I come from this background? I don't want to do this. Why did you make me this way? I'm in this situation with all of my frailty and my, all the disappointments in my life, whatever we want to call it. And yet God wants us to have this conversation. And in that conversation, three things are going to happen. Number one, it's going to be a process. It's a process. It's going to be a presence, and there's going to be a payment. 
three things. And the first is a process. And the process is simply this. Notice in this passage, notice how beautiful it is. He begins by saying, I've been expelled. You've cut me in, you've cut me, cast me into the deep. I've been expelled from your sight, verse four. And yet you brought me up. Notice how it transitions from a process of being expelled, being outside, and now coming and feeling like I'm now part of. You're bringing me back, Lord. You're bringing me back from my rebellion, from my reluctance, from something. And, and he speaks of this grace that is so profound that we, unless you experience it, truly experience it, you'll never know. It's like, it's like visiting a beautiful European castle. Schönbrunn, if you've ever been to Austria, Vienna, Austria, the Habsburg monarchy owned this beautiful castle, this gigantic estate with all this property. And when you go into Schönbrunn, you, you, you visit, like Versailles, you walk into one of the rooms and it's grand and it's gigantic. And it's the ballroom or it's the dining room or and then you start working through the bedrooms and one door leads to another door. And you notice that? And another door and another door and another door. And you just keep working your way like a maze through this, this gigantic property, this gigantic piece of real estate, this, this beautifully crafted, artistic, the best of the artists of the land, the most beautiful craftsmen have used 14, 18 karat gold in the walls and it's painted and it's statues and you open a door and another one, that's God's grace. And you enter another room and it's more and it's more beauty and that's God's grace. And you just keep walking through these doors and you realize the abundance of grace. The abundance of grace. And yet we want to divide. We want to do something else with it. And yet God says, come in and see, and experience. And Jonah is experiencing that, and I think he's reflecting on the grace of God. But notice it's a process prayer because Jonah accepts that and acknowledges that, yet he puts a little prick. He puts just a little tiny, like, uh, he, get, he goes after the, in, the Ninevites in the middle of his prayer. Do you notice that? He doesn't leave it alone. He's still a little upset and a little reluctant because notice what he says. But those who regard vain idols, who's he talking to? Forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to the Lord. What's he saying? Yes, I understand your grace, but those vain idolaters, they're still outside of your grace, aren't they? And I love that it's a process prayer, and I love that what, what's happening in Jonah's heart is it's a slow process, and I love that. And here's the point. It's honest. And it reminds me of Job. Remember Job? Job in the Old Testament, what happens? He loses everything. Everything. And, and his wife, his wife is the, survives this catastrophic series of events. And he's now poor. He's covered in boils. He's sick. And his wife says, curse God and die. And he doesn't curse God, but he's most certainly upset because it says in Job 23 that he searched for the throne room of God so that he might make his case against God. And he searched and searched for that place. And at the end in Job chapter 52, God actually honors Job and says to his friends, you guys better watch out 
Because what you did is you complained about me. Job complained to me. And there's a big difference. Prayer is an opportunity to engage a faithful, loving, relentless God who can handle it. I remember when our son was going through the worst of his hospitalization, I kept reminding myself as I was having one of these belly of a whale conversations with God, and I kept reminding my, and I was reminded by other friends, God can handle my anger. God can handle my frustration. God can handle my wailing. He can handle this. But the minute I turn from God, that's a different thing. But I need to face him and have that conversation and pour out my heart. And that's the process that Jonah was going through. And part of our prayer is a process. But the second thing I've discovered is it's also a presence prayer. Notice twice he mentions the temple. In verse 4, I look again toward your temple. And then again in verse 7, and my prayer came to you in to your holy temple. What's he talking about? The temple in the Old Testament represented the presence of God. And God took great pains to stay present with his people all throughout the Old Testament. It began, it began with the tabernacle and they would carry the tabernacle, tabernacle, it was a tent, right through the wilderness. And they set up this tent and the Holy of Holies and they would offer sacrifices and God would come down and consume the sacrifice and be in relationship with his people, and they would move on, and they'd set up the tent. Again, why did they always do that? Because they couldn't go forward without his presence, because they knew presence was everything. It was the power. It was love. It was uh, the, the plan. It was everything. They did not know what to do next, but when you have the presence of God, you have everything you need. And so part of our prayer is entering into the presence of God where we hear him speak to us and we want to be with him. That's what presence is all about. God wants that from us. In fact, in the tabernacle in Exodus 25, by the way, it says, you will build this and you will have the Holy of Holies and you will build this structure and it's there that I will meet with you. It's there on the earth. And the tabernacle becomes the temple. And Solomon builds it. It gets destroyed. It gets rebuilt. And then it's destroyed in 70 AD. And everything about the temple in God's presence is transferred to Jesus. John chapter 1, Jesus tabernacled among us. Jesus became the tabernacle of God. You look to Jesus, you see God. And then the tabernacle of Jesus, who's tabernacling with us, when he departs, what happens? He now lives in us. We become the temple. And we now have Jesus in us, the, tab, the, 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 the connection, the presence of God, and we enter into a prayer. You're entering into the presence of God. And the third thing I notice about Jonah's prayer, which ends this, is, is the payment. There's a payment. There's an offering. There's a sacrifice. And the very last thing he says, and he goes, he talks about this temple, but I sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. So his voice is a sacrifice. I'm going I'm to give thanksgiving. I'm going to praise you. So praise God, the psalmist remind us. Make a loud noise. Decide that you're going to praise God in the midst of your suffering. 
that which I have vowed I will pay. There's a vow that he makes, and the vow is a payment of an offering up. And so it's just, it's just not a process prayer of being honest. It's not just simply a, 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 a presence prayer of being close, of wanting more of, G, of God in Christ, but it's also a, a payment prayer where you, there's an offering. There's some kind of an offering. So you're making these temple moments. You're creating temple moments in prayer. And then you're making an offer. Lord, I hand, I hand over this to you. My thanksgiving instead of my anger. My thanksgiving instead of my disgruntledness. My, my thanksgiving instead of my rebellion. Or, or part of me. Or my apathy. Or my lack of concern. Or whatever it is. I hand that part of my life over to you as a sacrifice. And I vow to that. And the Lord then spits him out on a dry land. So we find in this passage, which is so beautiful, the process, the presence, and the payment that prepares Jonah and the nation of Israel and the people of God for the great work of God, which is to be passionate for his compassion for all people. Let's pray. Lord, in this story, I, um, I think the thing that for me, Lord, I just, I keep hearing over and over again is, is I got you in this place. I got you in a tight spot because I really want to talk to you. And I want, to, I, I want to connect with you. And I want to go deep with you. And maybe the Lord has you in a tight spot right now. And I just want you to just turn to him. And I, I want you to acknowledge that. And uh, be willing to, um, to be present with him. To be in process. And to consider a payment. An offer. Some offering. Yeah, grace is free. But it's also costly. We are to be a living sacrifice. And uh, that begins in our hearts. So Lord, here we are this morning. We've, we've been exposed to the life of Jonah and his own story. And now we ask the question, what do you have for us, Lord? As we sit here and ponder, may it go far deeper than simply a story. May it go deep within our souls. May we learn from Jonah and be guided through his prayer into a greater relationship with a God who is relentless in his love for all people. In Jesus' name. So as we're going to close and we're going to move into worship, we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper together and the elements are being passed, the bread and the juice. And so take that. And let me just remind us that the cross of Jesus casts a very dominant, prominent, long shadow over the story of Jonah and over the story of our lives. 
It's where, it's where the story headed for an incredibly important turn where um, Jonah's crying out, Jonah's predicament, um, his reluctance as a prophet, his frustration with evil in the world. It found its hope and conclusion in the cross and the resurrection. And uh, so Christians for literally centuries have come to this table with the bread and the cup. And it's so simple, you know, it's, it's so simple, it's almost strange what we're doing right now. But it's a, 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 a very real symbolic moment and opportunity to remember, because Jesus said to his disciples at that last supper, when, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And he took that loaf, he broke it, he held it up. He said, this is my body. This is my body, which is for you. And then he invited his disciples to take that very simple bread and take it into their bodies as if they're like just taking Jesus into their very center. So just invite you, take the bread. fact, Jesus not only offered his body, but he shed his blood, and life was in the blood. He gave his, he gave his very, very essence, essence of his life to us, and said, once you take this cup, all of you drink from it. And the fact that we eat this bread and drink this cup together, it, it symbolizes that we're a family. And we, and we do this together. So let's partake together. I invite you to stand as we finish with worship.
confusion, Lord, wherever we're at, you take us right where we are. That was too cute not to acknowledge. So anyway, we love you, God. We thank you for family. Thank you for community. And we thank you that you pursue us. And you're good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hi, amen. Huey. <laughs>